Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck. On today's episode, I'm sharing the mic with Alex Ball, who's here to share his unique story about battling opioid addiction while learning that his young daughter has cancer and ultimately making the decision to stop hiding his addiction and start his path to recovery. Alex, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here, and I'm so happy we connected. Thank you so much for having me, Nikki. In the short time that I've gotten to know you, I can tell you, I can tell you you've already been a, a pretty, you've been a blessing in my life already. You're awesome. I'm Thank excited so to much. talk to you. Uh, likewise. I, this is a really vulnerable topic, and I know it's a topic that will resonate with a lot of people, whether listeners have experienced any sort of addiction themselves or someone they know and love may be going through something or have gone through something. It's definitely an experience that touches a lot of people and their lives. Would you mind just starting by telling me a little bit about why you wanted to share your story? Yeah, I think I wanted to share my story because I think that one of the reasons why my addiction became as bad as it did become and and things in my life were really hard for a few years is because I wasn't willing to be honest with myself about some things and I wasn't willing to I, and I wasn't willing to be myself. I wanted to be this version of a man that I thought I was supposed to be. And, and because of that, for, because of that, I went through hell and I put my family through hell and I wasn't there for my daughter in certain situations when I needed to be there for my daughter, all because I was trying to be somebody that I wasn't. And the second that I, ch- I changed and I started being myself, my, my life became so much better and I was able to be there for my family. And I think that happens with a lot of people. And I, so I'm just really excited to, to share my story and hopefully help a few people maybe be willing to be themselves a little bit and make the world a little bit better around them. Yeah, I love that sentiment. And I can completely understand that reasoning being able to show up fully and really acknowledge the the experience for what it is. I think it's probably pretty easy to try to move forward without staying too attached to the past when it's something that is very traumatic and ultimately has such a massive impact on your life. But at the same point in time, it's pushing it down just doesn't make it go away. And I think that's where when we first spoke, you shared... Um, that you were introduced to painkillers at age 11 because you had a football injury. And yeah. so, so that was at a very young age, you were exposed to something that ultimately sent you down a path in the long run that I imagine you probably didn't anticipate, probably because you no, couldn't no, no. at that age, first and foremost. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but to be even just looking back on that now, what was that experience like for you at such a young age? I, I hope that in people hearing about my history a little bit and seeing how things got started and everything, I hope that 
people that have loved ones that are going through that can understand a little bit why things happen the way they do. And maybe that can help them with their loved ones as well. For me, it was at a really pivotal time in my life. There were a couple really big things happening at once. First, when you're 10, 11 years old, obviously, right, you're just going through changes, you're going through different things, and you're trying to figure stuff, trying to figure stuff out. I just changed schools, didn't have many friends, was trying to figure some stuff out there. I was getting bullied a little bit in school and was was going through some things there. And then at home, I was having some issues with my family. And then a father of a friend of mine sexually assaulted me and uh, a couple of times. And I was trying to figure all that out. So that all happened when I was about 10 years old. And then uh, the one good thing in my life is I was good at sports. (laughs) And so, so uh, I was playing football and I had a pretty serious injury that happened to my elbow. And I went to, when I went to the doctor, they told me that I needed to get surgery. So I got the surgery and for two, after that surgery for two weeks, I was on painkillers and I was getting bullied at school. I was having issues at home with my family. I was, I just gotten sexually assaulted. I hadn't told, I hadn't told anybody. I didn't tell anybody until two years ago. Oh, wow. And that's wow. something that I held on to for a very long time. I was actually in addiction recovery. That's what allowed me to actually start sharing that with people. Thank you for trusting me and for yeah, sharing that here. I know that's something that is extremely personal and also very difficult to share and speak about. So not to completely interrupt, but I do think no, it's important to acknowledge that it's something that I think a lot of people deal with. And I believe that there is a lot of desire to avoid bringing topics like that up within ourselves, because it's that acknowledgement that is actually our life. And these are the experiences we had. And so I imagine that was probably pretty important in terms of your healing journey to be able to get to a place where you could share that. Yeah, it was probably the most important thing. And that's something that we'll, I guess we'll talk a little bit more about in depth later when I got to that point. But I think it happens to a lot more men than people realize as well. A lot more like boys and, uh, and it's such a, like you're saying, it's such a taboo subject and, and you all, like when it happens to you, and I'm sure that you've seen this with men and women, when it happens to you, you are embarrassed about it, even though it's something that happened to you that you didn't really have control over. Like for whatever reason, you feel shame about it because it happened to you. And as a guy, you feel like less of a man. And, and so I'm trying to deal with all of that, have the surgery and I start taking these painkillers and, and yeah, obviously it helped with the pain. And if anyone that's ever taken drugs or been high or anything like that, it, yeah, it feels, it feels great physically, but more importantly for me, I'm 11 years old. I start taking these pills and all of a sudden all this crap that I'm going through goes away and I'm not thinking about it anymore while I'm high, I'm nicer to people. I'm nicer to my family. I feel like when I'm high, I. Do you think for, that that I, was because you were um, distracted? Like you weren't, you didn't feel like the intensity of what you were going through. Yeah, for me, and I know for other people that I've talked to, when I get high, my insecurities go away. I don't think about any of the things that I'm normally 
insecure about when I'm high. And I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm really myself, but I feel like I can act like myself when I'm high. So I, I actually, while I was still on painkillers for like a week, had to go to school because I had the surgery during like a school break or something. And was taking painkillers when I went to school. And during that week, all of a sudden I had friends, people liked me, all this stuff because I was high and I didn't have many insecurities and I'm happy and not a lot bothers me. And all of a sudden, so all this happens in my mind, I know I'm addicted, even though I didn't get any more painkillers after that two weeks, but addiction is so much more mental than it is, than it is physical. And I, I knew, like I knew. Even at that age, you feel like you were like keenly aware. Yeah. I knew that I loved those pills and I loved that feeling and I wanted that feeling again. It was a weird feeling. It was kind of a scary feeling, but it was also an exciting feeling to know, okay, this thing can fix a lot of problems for me you know yeah Yeah. it didn't really fix problems but it felt like it did yeah well i think that's an important point to make right that's probably like the crux of most addiction is that it feels like it's doing the service that you want it to do but it's masking more than delivering like a healthy result i mean again such a young age so like the fact that you were aware of it and it was helping with these insecurities that you had it was helping you manage the emotions surrounding events that were going on with your life do you feel like there was like a before and after for you in those moments oh absolutely it's hard to explain and exactly put words to it but everything changed at that point yeah i'm not exactly sure how to put words on it but there was a change there was a change yeah i'm curious you'd made a comment earlier and when we initially spoke that there was a bit of like the perception of masculinity that factored into sort of your path towards having this addiction um Mm -hmm. do you feel like that was something that you felt at that point too it was the result of a sports injury so i'm curious if that environment that you were in from an athletic perspective also sort of weighed into your feelings about like yourself and your self-esteem absolutely at that point i loved to sing (laughs) i loved theater i didn't admit it to anybody but i loved theater i loved cooking (laughs) like i've always loved to talk but i like talking about feelings i loved hearing people's stories all things that i'd say probably are traditionally not necessarily masculine things Mm -hmm. I disagree with that. I think a lot of us nowadays, as we evolve and think, would disagree with that. But at the time, yeah, I I felt like I had to hide who I was. I remember trying to figure everything out, thinking like, what if I'm like, what if I'm gay? Or what if that's what if that's who I am just because I, you know, I have different interests and there's some things that I have. Obviously, for me, I guess not obviously, but for me, I found out that wasn't the case. I wasn't homosexual. But the fact that that even popped into my head that I had these interests. So what if I was gay? I was trying to figure I was trying to figure out who I was. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. I love sports. It's not that I did sports because I was trying to hide behind them or anything. I loved sports, but I felt like I couldn't be who I was. Yeah, that makes sense. But when I was high, that wasn't a problem anymore. You speak a lot about the importance of being honest with yourself just in general and going on that journey and and trying to figure out who you are. What was the next moment in time where you found yourself like 
in denial of who you were and feeling yeah. I guess, masked by this. So I think one thing that's really important for people to know, especially people that might have loved ones that are struggling with addiction, is that the addiction, whether it's opioids or uppers or whatever, is just a way to mask the pain of things that are happening inside that person. It's not the actual problem itself. And any time that I've ever helped other people that are struggling with addiction or or with myself or just all the things that I've seen in this world of recovery as I've gone through recovery myself, the addiction is never the issue. There's a whole lot that's happening with inside that person and the addiction is a way to is a way to cope with pain. It's really, it's a symptom of a larger problem, to your point, something a, that isn't being addressed. It's a symptom, exactly. So I had the opportunity when I was 11 years old, I started realizing some things. I started growing up a little bit more. I get a little bit better at sports. I start kind of growing in, into this persona of who I think I should be. In high school, some things don't necessarily go my way. I got injured over and over had some had some issues start taking pain more pain medication same feelings same issues but in high school everything you know as you get older things get a little bit worse and worse high school that's that was the first time i actually bought drugs like off the street that i didn't get from a doctor and start experimenting with other things but for me with my sexual abuse stuff i don't know how it is for other people it's not something i talk about a whole lot but for me, it got worse and worse. In my mind, I think I thought that if I just put it in a box and compartmentalized it and then gave it time, that it would just eventually go away. But it didn't do that for me at all. It got worse and worse and worse. I, and I think that probably a lot of people share that experience. Yeah. Um, have, I'm sure you've talked with people that have had issues with that before. Is that a normal? Yeah. So I am. Um, I can speak to my own experience yeah. with my ex who there was a lot of pathological lying over the course of our relationship, but I do believe that there was some fact to what I was told with regards to her experiencing sexual assault. And I think that's something that probably factored in quite a bit to her ultimately struggling with addiction, being in denial about it. Even when we were in couples therapy and she was just in therapy and I was offering like as much information as I could find and learn about to be like, these are things that like you have to work through. This is what you have to do. And I know I don't understand because I've never had that experience, but there's the way to get through it is to address it. And it sucks. Yeah. It's not like you're like, cool, I have to talk about these things that make me super uncomfortable and are <laughs> deeply traumatic. But yeah. at the same point in time, like I was watching that decline. And it was like, please do something like please find a way to work through this because what is happening and what you're not admitting is happening is not the outcome that you want, or at least I would assume it's not the outcome that you want, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I yeah, I think my friends who have unfortunately been sexually assaulted, the people who are moving forward in life and able to manage their day to day are the people who have confronted it head on, 
for better and for worse in moments, I'm sure, you know, it's like, yeah. there's always going to be those moments of anguish and anxiety and pain and anger and frustration, all the things that you feel when you experience things like that. But yeah. like at the same point, some of the most resilient people that I've ever met are people who have been willing to open up about that and share their experiences. And I think it also is a matter of having a safe support system that you can communicate with and also not feeling obligated to share, feeling out sort of the situation and being able to say, this is what I'm comfortable with right now. And this is what yeah. I can share and knowing like what your boundaries are with that. Because even with my own experiences and not related to sexual assault, but just in life yeah, with my partner now, like something will happen. I'll be like, I, this is too much for me right now. Like I can go about this far into the conversation and I want to, because yeah. it is helpful when you feel a moment where you're like, I can express something right now, but I'm not going to like yeah. continue talking about it. I just want to <laughs> get part of it out. So I know that I did it and I feel like better about that but i think it's so circumstantial to an individual and mm. i do believe i think you're correct i think it is extremely imperative to be able to have a sp space to go and to talk about it and the more that you hold on to that like your body starts to respond to that too that is something that i didn't believe in until just the last couple of years i've gotten a little bit more into like holistic healing and like eastern yeah. medicine my my mother-in-law does a lot of that stuff and like it's crazy how your body holds on to trauma and how it can just destroy you physically and emotionally yeah and you think you're fine and if you don't talk about it but you're not fine and it, it makes everything worse and the saying like the chickens will always come home to roost like it will always come back up the more you shove it, the harder it is to fix. Right? Totally, 100%. And then the anxiety <laughs> yeah. about it just gets greater and greater. It becomes a point of like, you're basically at that fork in the road where it's like, what do I do? Absolutely. So after high school, I find my incredible wife and I get married. Her name is Cynthia. And uh, awesome. Just incredible. Incredible. How'd you two meet? So I was 17 and she was 20 or 21. And one of my first jobs that I ever had, I worked at a Boy Scout camp teaching merit badges and stuff. Oh. And my, my wife, she was a lifeguard. Uh, so we met each other and we actually did not like each other at all. Like we, uh, we fought and, and we either ignored each other or we got on each other's nerves. But over years and years and years of knowing each other and then developing a friendship and then finally dating and then once we finally started dating we got married in like three months but we'd known each other for seven years and had gone from hate to friendship to getting married what a journey yeah so we get married and uh, some things immediately start coming up i'm really good at first impressions <laughs> and i'm really good at putting on a face for friends and things like that but once you get like in a relationship like a committed relationship, you just, there's just things you can't hide anymore. Right. And all of a sudden she sees my, she starts seeing my insecurities and she starts seeing the crazy parts of my, the crazy parts of me that I've been hiding from her. And, and then, you know, we're married and we need to have a sex life and our sex life wasn't very good because I, I'd been sexually assaulted and I hadn't worked through that. And for me, it was hard to have it was hard to have sex because every time I had sex, I thought about that time. Right? Is that something your wife it... knew about 
Nope, she didn't okay. know at all. And she was having a hard time because we were having sex like once every couple of months. Yeah. And you can't do that in a marriage. In my opinion, it just doesn't work. Regardless of frequency in terms of what people have as personal preferences, it's like there's going yeah. to be a gap in the relationship. I know yeah. that when a lot was happening with my ex, there was no like physical intimacy. It was very difficult. I felt very aware. So I was trying yeah. to be respectful. Um, mm -hmm. Different story because I, I knew, but it makes you hyper aware of like your vulnerability in that situation, I imagine. Yeah. And so then it's just going to recycle if it's something that's yeah. still like an open wound. So before we got married, my wife didn't really realize it as much, but for her, physical touch is a very important love language for her. Mm -hmm. And so um, she wasn't feeling super fulfilled within the marriage. We were fighting. I had so many insecurities that I hadn't worked through at all yet. I had hit everything. And so our marriage is struggling. We have a child. Her name's Emma, our first kid. So she's about three years old. And by this point, I was using a couple of times a week. No one knew. How did you start again? Like after, because you said in high school, you started using again. Were yeah. you using the whole time from high school? No. That? Yeah. So I, so I used for about a year in high school and then I stopped again. And then I started up again. So around the time that we had Emma, I had another surgery. So I've had 11 or 12 surgeries for different injuries from sports stuff. Every time I had surgery, I got really excited because I knew it was coming. I knew that I could get painkillers and not get in trouble. But then it got on top of me and um, started making things up and getting painkillers from doctors. But then eventually that stopped working because they keep track of those things. Right. And so then I started getting it off the street. Do you think your wife was aware like of how you were using the medications when you had them for those purposes? Do you feel like she was oblivious to it? But she was oblivious to it. Or that's what she told me. I mean, I definitely I felt like I was. And I look back on things now and I'm like, I should have known. Like I could see it, but I didn't understand, you know, like I, it wasn't something I'd ever exactly. encountered. So I didn't know to suspect it. Yeah, exactly. I think she might have suspected. So there was this one time where we're laying in bed. And uh, I had started running out of painkillers. I had a little bit, but I knew it wasn't enough to get me high. So in my idiotic uh, addict mind, I thought it would be a great idea to go to the medicine cabinet and find every single prescription that we had ever had. And I took one of everything along with a little bit of painkiller. There are probably 20 different prescriptions that I took one pill of everything and I started to having hallucination. Like I was in bed and I started freaking out because I thought I saw spiders coming down from the bed. I fell asleep and I woke up and she's like, Alex, what happened? <laughs> what happened last night? What was that? And I don't remember. I said something. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I'd gotten a prescription and then I'd taken something and I didn't know that they would react or something. Yes. And she, I guess she bought it. But I think she started at that point wondering but not easy to validate. Yeah. And that's the hard part. Yeah. And that... it's hard to just like say it's I, I imagine, right? It's hard to just be like, are you using drugs? I, I literally <laughs> had this moment where I like my yeah. ex was, she had just had a ton of dental surgery and yeah. had been prescribed oxy. And I 
she told me that she flushed them, which like didn't make sense to me because she's like, I don't want to, I don't want to take pain pills. I just flushed them. It's like, of course I never saw her flush them. I didn't know where yeah. they were. I had moments in time where like my pills would be gone. I take mm -hmm. medicine for ADHD. So like mm -hmm. stimulants, yeah. um, and I'd be getting gaslit about it, but it was like, I couldn't, mm -hmm. like, I couldn't pinpoint it to be able to be like, yeah. that's what you're doing. Like, I see it. This is what's happening. There was yeah. always just like a slight, there was just like enough doubt in my own mind to not be Holy. like, I know for a fact, this is what's happening. And then when Holy. I got to that point, the denial was extremely substantial. So it was like a completely different story. When she had been prescribed the oxy, I was sitting with her and she was like, really like nodding off, Look, looked really messed up. She was saying something about having taken oxy. And I was like, did you take it? Do you, do you have any, like, where mm. are you talking about? And then she just laughed it off and then nodded off or whatever. And then the next day she actually ended up having a seizure in my arms. Like it terrified oh, the shit out of me. I had no idea yeah. what was happening. This is the thing. She was having reactions to things that were happening, but like, I didn't have the full context. So it was like, to me, that wasn't response to drugs. That was response or withdrawing. I couldn't connect the dots because I didn't have all the information. And honestly yeah. saying it out loud right now, gives me a little bit of grace for myself because I do look back on those moments and think, God, how could I not fucking see it? Like it was right there. It was in my face. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but I had 40% of the information I needed to come to a rational conclusion about it, you know? Yeah. So as you start becoming an addict and I feel like a lot of addicts might naturally, like if you're naturally going to become an addict, then you might naturally be able to manipulate the situation. I feel like a lot of addicts are good manipulators. It's just... It, like, how do you go to somebody you love and start accusing them of having a drug addiction? And then if you even did, or even if you did bring it up, we would find a way to make you feel bad about it. Th for this, bringing it up. this literally happened. I want you to keep sharing, but yeah. I am going to just make a comment real quick. Yeah, uh, please. So I had gotten to a point where I was like, just in disbelief about a lot of things that I was being told. I was very aware yeah. that other things were happening. She was claiming to be dissociative, but I think that was just leaning into me speculating that was the case and trying to understand what was wrong from a mental health perspective and trying to help. Mm. And I think I like fed ideas. Yeah. Um, and one night, like she had totaled three of my cars in like a year and a half. And oh, no, almost because of being one. high. I'm going to say yes, because one of Probably. those was one of those was a DUI that like she That's claimed right. wasn't a DUI and I advocated. I was like, no, I just yeah. fought in her corner. I was like, she takes Xanax. That's what it is, you know? And then yeah. the next one was this random story about being abducted by people, but there was no proof to that. And there was video footage at a 7-Eleven where the police found her phone and it was like, nope, she wasn't under any sort of duress, like really insane shit. Yeah. And then the last one that was like the thing for me was those things should have been the thing, but they weren't. <laughs> I had yeah. the dash cam footage not of her but you could hear the audio and i could mm -hmm. see everything ahead yeah picking up a homeless man in my car in the late evening when yeah. it's dark out going to like an rv where clearly you're picking up drugs and then doing heroin in my car uh. while the guy asks is that a dash cam does it record yeah and i was like and I was watching this yeah. because that night she crashed my car, but didn't total it, crashed my car, 
several times on the way home i found out i ended up having to go pick her up because we only had one car at the time so i like grabbed a lift to go pick her up what was her excuse for doing the heroin for all of that that i witnessed no for crashing the car oh did she 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 admit that oh oh no 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 i have dash cam footage of her lying to the insurance company about (laughs) what happened she said that somebody like sideswiped her and she hit a curb oh gosh It was like, no, you drove directly into the curb is what actually happened after blowing several stop signs and sideswiping somebody on the highway. I mean, it was insane. And Uh I, so I see this footage and I'm like, oh my God. And she's in the other room and I'm like, what is this? And the only reason I checked the dash cam footage, by the way, the only reason there was a dash cam was because my car had been totaled three times in a year and a half. And I was like, I don't feel like (laughs) what's going on. I don't feel like you should be driving, but that was a whole separate gaslighting situation yeah so when i saw this and i was like what the hell she just completely denied that she knew anything about it it was dissociative i didn't know i was doing it but then these things kept happening and then i was like i'm leaving i'm going back to see my family like i can't deal with this this is so far beyond what i'm capable of handling as a human being and i bring this up because i think it's important to acknowledge that there were a lot of things that were obvious signs to me that i did not trust myself enough to be able to say with conviction to your point, that's what this is because I saw the mental health issues first and I leaned into that and I really believed that she wanted a better life for herself and that if I was supportive enough that she could be okay. And that's a lot of responsibility to place on yourself as a human being. To segue back to what you were saying, like you as the person who is dealing with an addiction are the person who has to make the decision to be honest with yourself and decide that you are going to try to find a way to stop that addiction and heal through it. And there has to come a time where the people around you say, I can't do any more. This is something you have to do for you. If you don't get to, yeah. yeah, (laughs) So if you don't get to that place on your own first, then there's high likelihood that the people who have been a support system, and in this case, it was largely me. It's like, everybody does have to look out for themselves in these situations. And so the fact that you were able to get to a place where you felt like this is something I have to figure out, I think says a lot because I have plenty of people that I've known that they've either recovered and they've made the choice for themselves or they've watched their family members just kind of fade out. I see it happen a lot. So one of the things that I've done is, but I don't know if you knew this, Nikki, but I have a small nonprofit and I help people that, that are going through addiction. So I see it a lot now. And when you're like a family member or a loved one that's trying to help somebody go through something like that, most of the time, from what I've seen, people either think, if I just help them enough and I'm kind enough and I'm understanding enough, eventually they'll love me so much that they will change because of their love for me it doesn't happen like that it and i know not. it sounds so awful i don't want to hurt anyone and i don't want to make anyone feel like their loved ones don't love them but it doesn't I'm, it doesn't have anything to do with love i love my wife so much and i loved my wife so much when i was at the worst parts of my addiction which we'll talk about here in a second if I would have had to make a decision between doing something for my wife or getting high, I would have chose to get high. And it didn't mean that I didn't love my wife, but it's a different ball game when you're really addicted to like drugs, like heroin. And it's really like a problem. 
it no longer is a matter of if they love you or not. Yeah. They're going to get high. I mean, and, it helps to hear that, to be honest. For different reasons, I'm skeptical yeah. of my last relationship. Yeah. But even my partner now tries to remind me that because it's difficult to be on the side where you are witnessing somebody, like you're coming to the realization that somebody's living a double life. Like that's mm -hmm. really like the hardest part. Yeah. Versus seeing somebody's addiction evolve and like being aware of it maybe the whole time. Yeah. Because when you realize that they're living a double life, all of a sudden the life that you've been living doesn't seem real anymore. And like, how do you live with that? You just like a hundred percent summarized exactly how yeah. I felt. Cause it was like, it just like totally disoriented me and was like, what have I been doing? What's been happening? What happened for is the last this, couple of years? Yeah. yeah. Like, is this my life? Is this the life yeah. that I'm okay living? And then that's a yeah. whole separate conversation that you're trying <laughs> yeah. to figure out. Right. Exactly. You're like, shit, what now? Exactly. Sorry. So go on. I agree. Also the other thing that will happen with people that are trying to help addicts that aren't quite ready to go through recovery is the exact thing that you talked about will manipulate you into feeling awful about accusing us of things. And if there's one piece of advice that I can give to somebody that has a loved one that's going through addiction issues, but hasn't admitted it yet, or maybe they're just not quite ready to go through rehab or whatever yet, don't let them lie to you and don't let them manipulate you. Like you are smart enough to know what's going on. And if like pills are missing, pills are missing. We all keep track of our prescriptions. We know better than that. Don't let them lie to you. Don't let them lie to you about stuff. And don't let them manipulate you into feeling bad. You're not doing anything wrong by trying to help somebody because there's an obvious problem. It's so hard. I can't imagine what you or my wife went through. I just... I mean, vice it's versa, so hard, too. Yeah. You know what I mean? I appreciate that a ton. I think that the empathy is what kept me trying for so long, too. You know, it was for a very long time, not about what was ultimately an obvious addiction, but it was seeing somebody that I cared about not being okay and trying to figure out how can I help you be okay and realizing that at some point, maybe that person didn't want help or didn't want to try harder than they were trying. Maybe they were comfortable with where they were at. And to your point, don't let them lie to you. That was the breaking point for me. I had that moment where the final interaction that we like really had was her physically assaulting me. And mm. because I saw her cell phone with like clear indication that she was talking to somebody about getting drugs and our address was there. I had just mm -hmm. gotten back after losing my mom like less than 24 hours. And of being home I said to her I was like just admit it like this is about drugs like just admit it like I can see it it's right there and it was like no it's not no it's not it's my lawyer and I was like you don't text a lawyer any of these things first <laughs> yeah. of all she was like what's that like yeah. the person texting her was like what's that bitch doing and I'm like I don't think that's a lawyer yeah <laughs> or really bad one. exactly it's get like, a different one <laughs> right, yeah yeah but it's like yeah. you're so committed to the lie like at that point I was just what do you do as the person who has been trying to help for so long when it becomes so, so obvious that there's no reasoning, there's nothing that you're gonna do. It was such like a finite moment where it was like, this is it, this is the best that you could have done. Call it, get out of the situation, help yourself. You can't help somebody else right now. That's the line in the sand. And I think that leaving for a few months before that was really critical for me. And one of my best friends before I went back said to me, come back, 
detached because if you come back with a sliver of like sentiment open, like she's going to slip in there and she's going to manipulate you and you need to be able to determine that that's happening. And so to your point, exactly. like, don't let them lie to you. It was like literally given no choice. It was like, you're literally flat out lying to me. And now my only choice is to call it like it is because there's nothing else that can be said at this point. Exactly. So sometimes when families of like people that are struggling, they'll be like, why would they do this? Why would they lie about this? Aren't they thinking about the future? No, we're not thinking about the future in any way, shape or form. We're not thinking about how the lies are going to come to get us. We're not thinking about how we're going to pay for our bills. We're not thinking about anything other than getting the next tie. That's the only thing that we're really thinking about. And we're not thinking about how we're hurting the people that are around us. We're not thinking about anything else other than how do we get high next? And then once you get high, you feel good for a little bit. And then when you come down, the next thought is, all right, what do I got to do for that to happen again? And you'll lie, you'll cheat, you'll steal, you'll sleep with other people, you'll do whatever it takes to get that feeling again. And once you're like, once if you have a loved one that's struggling through that, if you're willing to accept that, you have to be willing to accept that there's no rational thinking they're not thinking about the future. They don't care that you're a loved one. They want to get high until eventually you get to the point where things do change. So let's get to that part. <laughs> um, so I'm starting to get high. We have a daughter, my wife, we're struggling in our marriage. Our sex life is struggling, right? All that kind of stuff. I'm getting high a couple of times a week. In my mind, I'm thinking it's only a couple of times a week. I still have a job. I'm still running a business. So my daughter, she's almost three years old and she gets diagnosed with leukemia. That was a really tough night. I put her to bed around 9 p.m. She wakes up around midnight and she's freaking out and she's crying. She's screaming. She's in pain. She's telling us her legs hurt. So leukemia is cancer of the bone marrow and the white blood cells and your white blood cells are made in your bone marrow in your legs mostly. And what was happening is her, uh, her, her white blood cell. There's so many not good cancerous white blood cells that were getting created all at once that it was making the bone marrow in her legs really dense. And it was causing like her bones to expand. And so she was in a ton of pain. We didn't know what was happening at the time. We were just, we were scared and worried and we got her in the next day to our pediatrician. Thank goodness our pediatrician used to be an oncologist before he was a pediatrician. So he immediately knew it took 20 seconds and he said, Hey, we need to test for leukemia. That must've been so, just like a heart dropping moment. It was. So she goes to the emergency room because she's actually struggling really bad and her vitals are getting worse and we're waiting for the test back and the tests come back and she has leukemia. So we live in Utah and we happen to have a, a hospital called Primary Children's Hospital. And it's only like 30 minutes, 40 minutes away from where we live. And it's an incredible hospital. Love Primary Children's Hospital. Free plug for them. If you ever want to donate to a children's hospital, that's a great one to donate to. So we get up there and all of a sudden we have a daughter with cancer. A couple days later, we find out that we're also pregnant with our second child. All this stuff is happening. And I so wish I could tell you that's when I decided to get clean so that I could be strong for my daughter. But I went the other way. 
and I, it became not a couple times a week. It became every day. And I was just shoving tons of money, buying tons of drugs and just using and using. And the addiction got really bad. How do you think that was showing up in your life at that point? I imagine yeah. if it was getting that bad, your wife was starting to become aware of it. No. So you're very good at hiding it. I am very good at hiding it, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I mean, she knew something was wrong. But you're also, because... there's so much emotion happening at that point, too. I imagine it's like there's such yeah. a, like a collision of things going on that it's probably would have been hard to pinpoint. Yeah. She knew something was wrong because I would come home from work and immediately just go up to my room and fall asleep because <laughs> I was high. She thought it was depression, and it was partly depression, but also from using. And I would do things like I tell my wife I have a late appointment or whatever, because you know I own my own I own my own company, and I had to meet with people. I'm going to be home late tonight. Just go get drugs, and then I'd go to the park in my car and get high or something. Yeah, I just wasn't home very much, and if I was home, I was in my room tripping. I did some terrible things that I feel awful about, like using my daughter's painkillers that were prescribed to her because of her cancer and uh, just things that I don't know if I'll ever fully be able to forgive myself for. I hope that one day I will, Um, but just things that I still haven't fully, still things that I haven't fully reconciled. And so in terms of like how you were actually functioning day to day what was that like for you were you seeing an impact on your business and like the day-to-day mm-hmm. -day stuff that was going yeah. on in your life my business was struggling really bad i tried to hide that for as long as i could but eventually right like you just don't have more money so that was really bad and that was struggling i i like i miss meetings with clients to go get drugs and get high and if i have clients that are listening to this just know that i apologize <laughs> sometimes i'd use my daughter's cancer as an excuse for where i was so i'd be like i'd go and i'd get high i'd miss a meeting they'd call and be like hey we had a meeting i was at the office where were you and i'd lie and say something like my daughter's in the hospital sorry and uh, yeah, what are they gonna say okay i, I understand and they'd reschedule in reality i got high I mean, I appreciate just, you admitting awful that things, awful things that I just still. I think an important part of this from an objective perspective um, is that you're being so honest about this, Alex, like so, so honest. And I appreciate that more than you can possibly know. A part of what I really still struggle with being on the side of it that I was is that there was never any acknowledgement, no accountability, nothing. And like went down swinging through the divorce mm -hmm. after losing my mom. Like everything was just like, it just- Were you married? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know that yeah. it was a, a marriage, a divorce. I thought it was like a serious girlfriend thing. No, no, oh. we had been married for, um, by the time the divorce was finalized, it was six years, but married for five and together oh, for gosh. almost 12. So it was a long That's time. That's a big deal. Yeah. yeah it, and I think that it was really hard to just never feel like there was accountability because there was not only a lack of acknowledgement of what she was doing and ultimately did to me, but that I was also framed as the abusive one at the end of it. Mm -hmm. um, and that part 
really upsets me. I wasn't doing the things that were being claimed to be done. And so I think to your point, it's like, you know, I understand why you feel the way that you do about the things that you did. And I also really respect you for owning that because this is like the other things that we were talking about where it's like, you don't want this to be part of your story, but it is, and you're owning it. And I just have such a massive amount of respect for somebody who will say that out loud with a sense of accountability, remorse, a feeling that you did something that you're not proud of, but you're also able to say it and show up fully knowing that that's not who you are. It's something that you did. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I sincerely mean that that's not easy. And I commend you a lot for being able to say it and being able to own it, especially like, I think people need to hear that you're going to have feelings like this and it's okay. It sucks. That's the reality. But like you don't get further down the path of healing without really feeling that. Yeah. Giving yourself the space to acknowledge what you did, right. What you didn't do right. And we all have those moments, but I really appreciate the raw authenticity that comes with you saying these things, because I don't think a lot of people would be so honest. I appreciate that. One of the first things, in my opinion, that kind of goes away is your remorse for anything that you do to people when you get addicted. And so I guess the way that I see it is, thank goodness that I feel bad about the way that I treated people because it means I'm growing as a person. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, even just this conversation, Alex, it takes a lot of strength to be able to come forward, share your story, be extremely honest and know that regardless of what anybody thinks about the conversation that we're having, you're being true to yourself. And to me, that's the most important thing in all of this. And by being true to yourself and being honest with yourself, like you've said, of course, that's going to create growth. And what I think is really amazing in this is that your story, while there are these moments that you, I'm sure, dread to think about it and acknowledge, like your daughters have a father who is resilient and strong and capable and caring and kind and willing to own up to things that you've done in your life and be better and show them what a good human being is. That's something that I don't think should be discounted. It's really important. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot to me. So I don't know exactly what happened. And I'll be honest, and I wish I could be more specific about why. But I just got to the point where I knew that I needed to stop. And if I didn't stop that, I was going to lose everything that was important to me. That's something that still bothers me to this day, because people will ask me, like, what got you to the point where you finally were willing to start going to recovery and those kinds of things? And I don't know the answer to that. Something just clicked one day. And I just finished some drugs and I just made a decision. Okay. I'm not gonna, I'm not going to go pursue it anymore. I'm not going to use, I'm just going to stop. Now I think I should have probably done it a little differently. So it was a Friday decided I was going to stop. So I get through Friday. No, you know, nothing serious, no big deals, no, no serious withdrawals, anything like that. Saturday morning, I start feeling it a little bit. And then my wife and I and our two kids were going to go up to my in-laws a few hours away. 
and um, they do something once a month called family dinner. So everybody goes up to the grandparents' house and we stay for the night, have family dinner and uh, just kind of hang out as a family. And during the drive, it really starts hitting me. The withdrawal, I'm breaking out into sweat. My wife is asking me why I'm like, like intense sweating. I told her it was because I was in pain. Like I told you, I've had a lot of sports injuries. For me, what happens is every injury that I've ever had, when I'm withdrawing, it's like my body knows how to get me to use. And it, every injury that I've ever had pops up again. And it's like it just barely happened all over again. And it feels like every single injury that I've ever had, I have arthritis in all of my joints as well now because of sports and stuff. And all those things, all that pain starts happening at once. And it's just like waves of pain over my body. So that's happening. And then the mental side of it too. It's hard to explain when you're like what it's like mentally when you're in the middle of it, but it's really intense mentally and emotionally. So we get to my in-laws and I ask if I can go lay down in one of their upstairs bedrooms and I go and I lie down and it's getting worse and worse. I get through that day. I get to the next day. That's when the family dinner is on Sunday. I'm just lying upstairs in bed the whole time. I'm sick. I'm throwing up. At this point, I'm throwing up constantly. I started planning my suicide. I don't know how in the world after years of struggling with addiction, but I had actually gotten a doctor to prescribe me pain medication and she had prescribed me 60 pills. And I knew that that was enough to kill me. I looked it up online and I had done the calculations and that was going to be available the next day on Monday. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get through today. I'm going to go get that prescription and I'm going to take them all and I'm going to be done. And I just, I didn't feel like I could handle it anymore. Um, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm a religious person. And while I was lying up in bed planning my suicide, because one of the things that people don't realize is if you go and you take a whole bunch of pills, especially opioid pills, sometimes it won't kill you. It'll just make you brain dead, but you're still alive. And I really didn't want that. I really didn't want that to happen. I didn't want to be a vegetable and trapped in my body. So I was really afraid of that. So I did the calculations, realized it should be enough that it would kill me. So I'm lying there and in the room that I'm lying in, there's a picture of Jesus on the wall. And I look up at that picture and I go, Jesus, I'm going to, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow unless there's something that you can do right now. If there's something that you can do right now to make the pain a little bit less or to get me through, then I'll consider not doing this. But if um, if I don't get some sort of relief, I'm done. I, I can't do this anymore. And it was a lot of stuff. It was the addiction and it was the withdrawal, but it was also just like I had been hiding from my family for years and I'd lied so much. And that was that guilt was hitting me. And it was this idea that I thought that when I told my wife what was going on, I, I was for sure that she was going to divorce me and I was going to lose my family and my kids. And I just didn't see a reason to live anymore for that moment. So I pray to the picture <laughs> on the wall. And two minutes later, after I do that, my mother-in-law comes up the stairs and she goes, hey, Alex, I just want you to know you know that I'm big into holistic healing and I've done a lot of training in that world. 
one of the things that I've learned how to do is foot zoning. And foot zoning is where you go and you're able to manipulate somebody's energy through their feet, through different massage techniques through their feet. The idea is as you touch certain parts of the feet, it connects to other parts of the body and through massaging and different things, that energy can help with pain or help fix things in the body and stuff. At this point, I was so desperate. I thought she was crazy all the way up to this point, but I was so desperate. I said, sure. She started doing it and literally five minutes into the foot zone, like the, my, all of my pain went away for a few hours. And um, that was what I needed to not kill myself at that point. It was a just that very moment. Significant. Yeah, that's a super significant moment. It was amazing. It was one of the craziest moments of my life. To this day, it's one of the craziest moments of my life. And ever since then, I've actually gotten really into learning more about like holistic healing and Eastern medicine and stuff. And then from there, I was able to stop cold turkey for about a month and a half. Thought I was done with it. At that point, when I, I told my mother-in-law what was going on, I told her I hadn't told anybody and I'd appreciate it. She let me do that myself. And she said, yeah, that's fine. And she was amazing. And when I told her and she accepted it and then she, and then she helped me with the things that she did, there's just this, all of a sudden there's this mindset shift. It was like, oh, I was completely honest with her. She doesn't hate me. And she helped me. And like, maybe it's not as bad to be honest about this as I think it's going to be. Yeah. And that's what I needed. So on the drive back from my mother-in-law's that Sunday night, I actually, that's when I told my wife and I said, Hey, this is what's been going on. It's been happening for this long. Told her everything that I needed to tell her. And she was amazing the way that she handled it. I think it was because I was immediate. I was honest with her when I started telling with her, like I told her everything. I didn't hold anything back. What was her initial response when you told her? So she was quiet and she let me finish everything, which was really helpful. She didn't ask me any questions or anything. She just let me get everything I needed to off my chest. She didn't interrupt. She just listened. And then when she knew I was done, basically she said, Alex, I love you. Thank you for being honest with me. I want to be with you as you get it fixed. And that was it. She didn't fight with me. She didn't blame me for anything. She didn't get mad at me for the lies. She just said, thanks for being honest. I can't imagine what you've been going through living this double life. That's got to be so hard for you. She was sad that I had been going through this by myself. Yeah. She wasn't sad about all this other stuff. She was just sad that she didn't know the information to help me. And that's when I knew I married the right woman. So I stopped for a month and a half, thought I'd, you know, beaten it. I've heard of some people that are able to just go cold turkey and then they just stop. I think in general, it should be a rule that you need to go to rehab. But anyway, I relapsed and I realized I wasn't going to be able to do it on my own. And uh, so then I went to a rehab clinic here in Utah um, and they helped me with some medication to help with the side effects and the withdrawal symptoms, which was great. Mm -hmm. But what changed me and what was able to get me to that point, the point where I am now, where it's not really a thought anymore, using drugs and those kinds of things was the therapy that I got. 
And that changed my life forever. The first time that I told somebody that I, I'd been sexually abused was actually in a group therapy session at the addiction clinic that I went to. I'd recommend that when you go to an addiction clinic, that if you don't feel comfortable with the people that are working there, or if you don't feel comfortable with the therapists or any of it, that you go find a different one because you got to get really vulnerable and you got to do some really hard work and you got to do some really emotional things to get clean and to really take advantage of everything that you can take advantage of when you go to an addiction clinic. And if you're not comfortable, you're not going to open up. You're not going to do the work that you need to do unless you trust the people that are helping you through that work. You and need to feel safe. Yeah. Because if you don't, or if there's a- any hesitation with the person at all, and you hold anything back, I think you're shortchanging your recovery and your mental health. It happened that the first place I went to was a, was the perfect place for me. And the people that work there were great and the perfect people for me. And I was able to work through that stuff. I was able to finally talk about being sexually abused. And I was able to work through the feelings of insecurities that I'd had because of me maybe not necessarily fitting the mold of a macho man that I thought I was supposed to fit into. And I was able to work through some family things that had happened during that time and all these different things. And I found that as I was able to work through these things, that the need and the desire for drugs just got less and less and less. Because forever, for so long, I had told myself that the reason why I was addicted to drugs is because of all the injuries that I had had. And you'll hear that a lot from people. I got addicted because I got into a car accident and I hurt my back really bad and I started taking painkillers and that's how I got addicted. Or I got addicted because of this and I broke my arm and when I broke my arm, they gave me painkillers and I got addicted. I would say 95% of the time, it is not because of that. It's because some things are happening in your life that you haven't worked through. And when you take those drugs those things that you haven't worked through go away briefly. Yeah. So if you're somebody in the middle of rehab and you keep relapsing, that would be one thing that I would probably look at as well. Are you being honest with yourself about why you're using your drugs? Yeah. Because when I decided to be honest about why I was using, it wasn't my physical pain. Everybody has physical pain and not everybody uses drugs, right? It wasn't my physical pain. It was the emotional issues that I had had and the trauma that I had held on to and the insecurities that I had had and this idea that I wasn't good enough. And when I was able to let those things go, the need for drugs no longer existed. I really love that, Alex. I feel like you just summarized that in such a powerful and profound way. The reality for so many of us is that when we feel either inadequate or like we're not seen or our life doesn't matter for whatever reason, whether that's through um, sort of our own lens or things that maybe have been embedded in us. I feel like we, we can make excuses, right? Like we can become very quick to justify and give a reason that maybe and most likely isn't really the root of all of it. And 
even addiction aside, like having a sense of accountability for things that we just don't want to deal with. We just don't feel comfortable because saying it out loud means it's true. And then if you say it out loud to somebody else, now they know what kind of judgment's going to be passed on you. And if you go into any sort of therapy, I imagine it's the same with addiction recovery. I expect most mm -hmm. people go into any sort of therapy with a guard up. I did. I was very <laughs> yes. skeptical. I was like, okay, yeah. I'm like, not totally convinced, but <laughs> yeah. Four years later, I'm the friend that's like, everybody needs therapy. We should all be going. <laughs> yeah. It's like you're denying something within yourself. Go check that out. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's hard because it is like you said, it's the most vulnerable. It is such an exposure of yourself and to feel like almost naked, right? Like it's this feeling of, oh my God, like I'm burying it all. As much as it's difficult to say it out loud and know that somebody else is hearing it. I found for me, not just saying it out loud and hearing it and knowing that somebody else heard it, but like really sitting with it and being willing to say, okay, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. Let's unpack that because and it's real. It becomes very uh, real. Yeah. And it mm -hmm. feels awful when you first get yeah. there because it's not like you say it and now all of a sudden you're like, I've gotten rid of that. It's okay now. Like <laughs> you have to deal with now that you've acknowledged it, there's everything that comes after the fact. And mm -hmm. to your point, you're battling a lot of the ups and downs. And I imagine, especially when you're dealing with addiction, when you hit one of those downs, it is like you, you have a default mechanism that's telling you to go do this other thing. And so for many people, it might be something that's not substance abuse related, but like there are plenty of people who deal with their issues in a similar way by working out aggressively like that can still be an addiction you're trying to cover up the raw emotion by building something else around it and it's just not mm -hmm. a sustainable mechanism one thing that if you're somebody that hears this and you're struggling with substance abuse please be honest with yourself don't worry about the social implications of being honest with yourself what do i mean by that what's more socially acceptable to tell somebody I got addicted to painkillers because I got injured and I'm in pain. And then I started taking painkillers and then I got addicted. Or I'm addicted to painkillers because I'm dealing with some emotional trauma. And one of the big things that people run into as they try and get past substance abuse is the ability to be honest with themselves about what's going on. And that's one thing that I really want to really want to push and I want to make clear to people. The other thing that I really think is important, and this hasn't, this isn't just substance abuse, like you were saying, and we talked about this a little bit the first time that we talked. One of the first therapists that I had at the addiction clinic, awesome person. I trusted them. I was able to talk about things, feel comfortable talking about those things. But I think maybe one of the problems was that maybe they had too similar of a situation to me it was a very coddling relationship and they didn't call me out on my crap and uh, for a few months I really loved I really loved that therapist a lot but finally I, I kind of started realizing that we weren't getting anywhere and then I had another therapist and this other therapist that I, I love this therapist to death and they're one of the closest people to me that that will probably ever be in this world but we have gotten in fights during therapy sessions because he's been willing to call me out on things uh, that I didn't want to be called out on but I trusted him enough that I didn't walk out of the room 
if you're going to therapy, you've got to find the right therapist for you. For sure. Whether you're in addiction or not. And the right therapist for you might not be the therapist that's going to coddle you. That's just my opinion. I agree with you. I think that that's important to acknowledge. I mean, my, um, my ex, I think a big problem was that the therapist that we were seeing as a couples therapist first then started taking her on simultaneously. The whole thing shouldn't have happened the way that it did. But suffice to say, I would be questioned by my ex. Do you feel like your therapy with this person's working? And I'm like, the only time I ever said I didn't feel like it was productive was the first session I ever had because I just wasn't sure yet. And this was years after the fact, but this other therapist that we had stopped seeing as a couples therapist, I think it's an important note there is that like she knew about all of these things that were happening and she continued to justify the behavior and citing that like she's been through so much you don't know what she's been through it doesn't just heal like this da, 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 da. and it's like i get that but i'm going to you for therapy too <laughs> yes and also yeah. the fact that like my ex would say to me like well i'm getting better and i'm like there's no way you're actually getting like there, there's whatever you think is happening is most definitely not happening because if you were healing, I wouldn't still be finding these things out about your usage of various substances. I wouldn't still be seeing your behaviors the way that they are, you know? And it's like that type of relationship that um, becomes codependent from like a therapy perspective is I think very very dangerous. It depends. Like I think boundaries and ethics are super important, obviously in therapy. And that's not to say that the first person that you spoke with wasn't a good therapist or doesn't have boundaries. Yeah. They, yeah, but, yeah. But, but, but I want to make that. Clear. Yeah. So, so to be clear, <laughs> this is specifically the situation yeah. that I'm referring to, but I get that because it's like, I watched it. I watched the therapist become overly invested in my ex and really not seeing what was happening, like being like almost willfully ignorant to it instead of addressing the ongoing issues that were putting her in constantly dangerous situations. And that part's really scary to know that like you're sort of enabling somebody to keep doing what they're doing if you're not calling them out on it. And that was, I think, reflective of what you said with like, don't let people lie to you. If you feel like they're lying, like call it out. That's just as important when it comes to a mental health care provider. Absolutely. What have you seen for that as far as like mental health care providers, therapists, like When finding one and when going to therapy, is there any advice that you would give people? That's a great question. You know, for me, it's like the first session might not feel like, you know, if that person's right for you, you might, Um, it could, it could very well be for me. It was really about being open-minded enough to say, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to be uncomfortable and this person doesn't know anything about me except what I'm going to tell them. And that's a lot of responsibility as the individual who's being therapized. They're asking you to show up fully. And if you don't, to your point, if you're not honest, you're getting feedback based on limited data points. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you want them to have all of the data points that they can have to help you. And I think that the big thing that a lot of people are so averse to therapy, like why they're so averse is number one, what you said, which is like, they feel like they haven't found the right person. And then they just stop definitely try to find somebody else. And also not all therapists are created equal. (laughs) Correct. And the other thing too, is if there's something specific that you're dealing with, try to find somebody who shows that they specialize in that. It was important for me to find somebody who 
knew how to deal with high anxiety and ADHD. These were things that were extremely difficult for me at the time when I started going. And I made sure that anybody that I was vetting at that point had at least those qualifications to be able to understand where I was coming from enough. How did you vet them? So I was, I basically, honestly, I like, I did a real thorough investigation via psychology today. Um, You can filter by certain things, which is really helpful with that. And some people even have like videos. So it's like, if you can get like maybe a little sense of who that person is before you end up talking to them, I I find that really helpful. The other thing is I think like the methodology, right? Not every type of therapy is right for somebody. For me, talk therapy, because I just am by nature, clearly a talker is because (laughs) I just need to communicate and express, right? But you know, I mean, my therapist also does equine therapy, which it's like, this is really good for helping people with trauma. So I think that it's a matter of just, do you need to maybe do EMDR? So like eye movement, desensitization, desensitization, reprocessing, I felt like it was super effective. But if if that's a very specific trained thing that a lot of therapists aren't trained in, Correct. And some will say they're trained in it, but they're not actually certified. Check their credentials. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think that to your point, it's like just really knowing why you're going is important. And if yeah. you don't know, let's put it this way, why you're there will change while you're there because you're growing and you're learning about yourself in the process. And so if you have the ability to find somebody that feels like a fit initially, ride that wave for a little bit and see if you feel like you're getting something positive out of it. Was it productive? Did I feel like I got something out of it? That's what I'm trying to understand because maybe I felt like total shit, but I got something I got out of somewhere. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I th- that's probably my biggest thing is like really putting in the effort, getting to a place where you can have your walls down. And I think so, the m- more comfortable you get and the more safe you feel, the more willing you are to be honest, both with yourself yeah. and with somebody else. I don't know if you can be honest with somebody else until you're willing to finally be honest with yourself. You know, I wonder with some people, they'll go to like addiction recovery because of like a court order or their families pushing them into it. But a lot of times in situations like that, it doesn't work. Those are a lot of times what happens with people that relapse. And maybe that's also with therapy as well like can a therapist help you if you're not willing to be honest with yourself yet i don't know i think that's a fair question and i would say probably not as much as you need but maybe it's a good start if you're willing to try maybe it's still a good start it's the evolution right release information in the way and timing that feels right to you but also understand that like you're limiting your ability to heal and grow if you don't eventually get to that place. If you're just going to therapy, looking for somebody to validate why you feel what you feel, like that's the wrong approach. You need to go with the intention of growing. Otherwise, honestly, why waste your time? That shit's expensive. Yeah. yeah. If you need somebody to validate, go find a friend. Yeah, totally. And they'll go validate how you feel. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Go to lunch with a friend and they can go validate how you feel. If you want to get somewhere and improve, then go talk to a therapist and spend the money to do it. Totally. It's funny because you answered questions that I was going to ask in like lockstep with where I was going to ask them. So it worked out perfectly. So I guess there's just, I guess there's some things I want to summarize real quick. Go for Um, it. If you are somebody that is struggling with addiction, you for, okay. If you're somebody that's using and you're 
you're, you're using not as a doctor prescribes the medication, then you're probably addicted. And if you're not admitting that to yourself, then first thing is first that you, you got to admit that to yourself. If you're a loved one of somebody that's struggling with drugs, it's not your fault. Please stop thinking that it's your fault and stop thinking that you have the ability to change that person or do something about it. That's only a decision that they can make. There's very little that you can do to change that situation. And if they keep using or they keep making bad decisions, it's not because you're doing something wrong. They're not going to change because of the things that you are doing. But when they are willing to change and when they are starting to be honest, no matter how hard it is or, or how much pain that they've caused you, once they really are being honest about stuff and they are willing to start changing and they are willing to start doing the work, then that's when you are as supportive and loving and patient as possible and promise that things can get so much better because I have almost committed suicide a few times within my recovery, but I've gotten to that point where I have an incredible relationship with my wife and an amazing relationship with my kids. I'm so much happier than I ever thought I could be, but it took a lot of work and it took a lot of time and it took years and years of working through stuff, but it's possible and you can make it happen. So. Alex, I want to thank you so much for sharing everything that you've shared today. It has been extremely- I hope it's healing for you a little bit. It is. Because I know you went through some serious stuff. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. That means a lot to me. I think part of what really inspired me to reach out to you when I first saw your post looking to guest on some podcasts was the fact that I knew I don't know the other side of it. And I was part of something that was extremely toxic, regardless of the addiction. Um, and there was a lot of resentment for a really significant amount of time when I was coming to the realization of like how much I was being gaslit. And again, that was yeah. relative to the addiction and also not. I think that when you really explain like how one track your mind is, when you're dealing with addiction and even though i've had other people say this to me i've had other people say this to me who are family members of people who have dealt with addiction or people who just know and can say objectively that's not what it is but to hear somebody who's gone through it say i would have lied i would have done whatever i needed to do it didn't matter that i loved somebody or didn't love somebody it was just like this is the thing that i was doing and that was going to be what it was period full stop mm -hmm. and like to hear that from you and see you on this side of recovery and, and see and hear the audible like gratitude and joy of where you are in your life right now is just so incredibly impactful. Like I had to give a victim impact statement because of the domestic violence that occurred. And even before that, I had said, I just, I want you to get the help you need and I want you to acknowledge it. You need to do more than what you're doing or you need to do something differently because this, what what's happening right now, this like, persistent state of just falsehoods it's just not serving anybody and like i can extract myself from that situation and thankfully i have an amazing support system you still are living a life that could be better if you chose that for yourself 
you're a human being and I don't want somebody to suffer that. It really gives me a lot of perspective on what cuts somebody so deep that they go down that path and they're not willing to pull themselves out of it or they struggle so much to be able to. And it just really has been so enlightening to share this conversation with you. This is a connection that I have an immense amount of appreciation for. And just having only spoken this couple of times, I feel like you're somebody who is going to be in my life. I hope so. Yeah, absolutely. This is significant to me. And I think that it's a powerful conversation that will, I believe, help a lot of people. So I really appreciate you taking the time with me. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a beautiful different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. DC, I host the rock podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric acid.